you have your Bible this morning, would you turn with me to the book of Ezra chapter 9. The book of Ezra chapter 9. As you're turning, we'll think for a moment just about what we have experienced in this book. As we have looked back at this historical document that has been preserved through the centuries by the careful and the gracious hand of God, we have an accurate account of how God renewed his people in a spiritual way, how God renewed his people in a physical way. The people of Israel had been carried away as captives as a result of God's judgment against them because of their sin. God had promised that this would happen, and they still, in spite of his promise, in spite of his warning, they still persisted on in their sinful pursuit. As a result of that, they were judged and they were carried away captive to, to Babylon for 70 years. God did promise that at the end of that 70 years through the prophet Jeremiah that he would come and he would restore his people. And we have witnessed this in a historical way. We've watched through the pages of this book as God has done just that. As God has acted, God has acted in covenant keeping faithfulness to renew his people. In a spiritual sense, absolutely. Because these people were, no doubt, as we are today, in need of constant renewal in a spiritual sense. We are in need of that moment by moment. (laughs) Day by day, month by month, year by year. And so there is never a time that was not needed, but there are times and seasons as we sang together of refreshing that happens among the people of God. There are seasons that are better, as it were, than other seasons in the, in the life of the people of God. But we have watched him in his faithfulness do just that, renew them in a spiritual sense, renew them in a physical sense, bringing them back to Jerusalem, allowing them and permitting them with the strength and the capabilities and the provisions to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem, to reinstate the sacrifices, to begin again the, the, um, uh, the, the festivals that, the, that they were instructed to keep. And so we have watched this even in the midst of opposition. So we can't forget that. We can't forget that the people of God are always surrounded at all times by opposition. Sometimes the opposition is more fierce. Sometimes the opposition is more uh, violent. And and, uh, that's the case throughout the history of the church or the people of God. But even in the midst of that opposition, God was faithful. And they finished the building. And they did reinstate the sacrifices, and they did restart the festivals. Well, last week we learned that Ezra actually comes into the book writing in first person at this point in chapter 8. As we see his first return back to Jerusalem, it's recorded for us. And as Ezra went back, as we noticed last week, We notice that the reforming of the people of God, the renewal of the people of God, continued still. And it continued through the clear exposition of the Word of God. 
In other words, he was able to unpack and to teach and to proclaim authoritatively as a priest of God the law of God in such a way that the people could understand it and the people could obey it, apply it to their lives. Now today, as you can see, we have a very sober, we have come to a very, very sober part of the story. One of the things that is so out of characteristic with the word of God would be people and churches who think that every Sunday and every song should be one of triumphalism. Let me ask you a question. Just a real down to earth, me and you, honest question. Is every day really good? I mean, is every day experienced with this kind of Everything's going my way and nothing's wrong. My friends, that is a false view of life. It's not reality and you know it. If you go home this evening and your spouse or one of your children or your mother or your father or your grandparents or a dear friend dies, there's no need for us to come at that point and say, everything's all good. There's, there's no mourning necessary. My friends, listen. In the Word of God, we are given a clear picture of reality. And in our services, when we come together as a church, we should celebrate all of the Scriptures in their breath of what they present and in their breath of the emotions that they present of the people of God and understand that these are given for our learning. These are given for our encouragement and for our benefit. So the title is Trembling at the Word of God. I I pulled that right out of a particular verse and I'll point it out as we see it. Trembling at the word of God, a call to repentance. So let's, let's dive right in. Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites... The Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Ammonites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race, or the holy people, this holy, the people of God. So that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithfulness. Very key. And in this faithfulness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. And so here we're presented with a scene. (laughs) And it's so real to life. Ezra comes from far away. It took him months to get to Jerusalem. He gets there to Jerusalem And they go in and their first, as you remember last week, I hope you've been keeping up reading this throughout the week will help you tremendously. 
But as they as they come back, their first objective is to kind of come and worship. You know, just just set their bags down. Thank God we're here. Praise be to him. Offerings are offered up. And then he's hit with the news. He is faced with bad news. Now, I'm just going to tell you in advance that I have seven headings under which to think about these two chapters. So, number one. This is number one. The sin of faithlessness. So, I want to think about that for a moment with you. The sin of faithlessness. And I pointed it out to you in verse 2 as we read. And I go back to it again. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. And so here we see that there is sin in the camp. There is sin in and among the assembly of God. And we find here a sin of compromise. There is a compromise that has been made by these individuals. And this compromise has resulted in corruption. Sin has a corrupting nature to it. Sin has a blinding effect and it will cripple your life. It will cripple my life. And it will also hinder the work of the local church. It will cripple the work of the local church. And so specifically they had intermarried with women from the other groups, the other people groups of the surrounding nations who had been brought there. You remember as they were taken out of Jerusalem, other people groups were brought into Jerusalem and the surrounding area and they inhabited the land. Now the people of Israel are back. And before Ezra can get there, the people have begun all of this work and all of this good has happened. But when he gets there, he finds that there has been this faithlessness. And that word, I looked it up, it's ma'al in the Hebrew, ma'al. And it means extremely, an extremely strong expression of abandonment of the faith. They had abandoned the faith. They had abandoned faithfulness to God, especially in our context, by the leaders. And this is a form, this word means that there is this breach of faithfulness. And it's often mentioned and used in the context of a relationship. So these Israelites, these leaders and others who followed their leaders in this breach, in this um, disobedient sin. They had committed, as it were, spiritual adultery. They were espoused. They were to be the bride of Yahweh. And they were to be steadfastly faithful and devoted to him. Many of you in this room are married. Let me ask you a question. Can you think of many things that 
would be worse in your life than for your spouse to be unfaithful to you? Can you think of many things? I didn't say you couldn't think of anything. But can you think of many things? I doubt it. That's the picture here that we're given of this word. That they had broken fidelity. They had broken this covenant relationship. Much like the covenant relationship that we experience in marriage. God over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And even in the, even in the New Testament. The church is called the what? The bride of Christ. And so we have this sin of faithlessness. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 3 and 4. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. Says this. You shall not intermarry with them. Talking about you go back and read the context. God is saying when you come into the land. Among all of these people groups. You are not to intermarry with them. Giving your daughters to, the, to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And here is what I put in my notes in bold and underlined it because this is the reason. You say, wow, I don't even understand that. You see, today when we think about ethnic groups, we think, wow, the bar is wide open. It makes no difference. Red, yellow, black or white. But it did to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And what we have to ask is why? Because there we will find the root of the sin. And here he gives the reason. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The reason that these people were not to intermarry with, with um, the Israelites were not to intermarry with the other nations when they went in to inhabit the land that God had promised to them is because these people, these ethnic people groups, they worshipped other false gods. They did not worship the one true and living God. And they had all of these idols and they had all of these abominable practices, these detestable practices that were infuriating our God and causing him to causing there to be a wrath and an anger and a judgment that was built up upon them until they were destroyed. And the people of Israel were not to compromise the purity of the assembly of the people of God by intermarrying with them. This was for their purity, or we could say this was for their holiness as the people of God. But more importantly, it was for the honor of the one true God. How many of you know the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments, do you know what they, how they start? The first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods beside me. God had provided them everything that they needed for their joy. Let me, let me bring this home to you, my friends. This is very, very relevant for us right now in this room. God had called these people out of slavery and oppression. God had protected them, cared for them. Provided for them. 
God had revealed himself to them. To them. And they were his covenant people. So what is at the root of this kind of spiritual adultery is this. That God himself and what he had done and what he had provided was not good enough. That's the root of this sin. That you and I would look to God and say, I know what you said. I know what you are like. But that's not good enough for me. Did you know that every sin has as its root that truth? Why do you want to sin? Why do you commit sin? You say, well, it's pleasurable. Yes, it is. But it is only pleasurable for a season, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews. And it is kind of a deceptive pleasure. Because sin might be pleasurable for a moment, but the end of it is death and decay and loss. But when we do it, everything that you and I grasp for, every time we break a commandment of God, every time what we're saying is, God, what you said is not good enough for me. God, what you have done and who you are is not sufficient for me because I need this. Can't you see? I need this. And in their case, we want to marry these women from other People groups who will lead them astray into idolatry. Number two. So we have the sin of faithlessness. The second category or the second heading is the response of broken despair. The response of broken despair. Look in verses 3 to 5. As soon as I heard this, says Ezra, I tore my garment, my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. What he did when he came to this, when he was faced with this, what did he do? When you, when you look around at the world today, my friends, listen. So many people today are calling good evil and evil good. And so today when someone sins, people very very rarely even bat an eye. Very often when we sin, we're hardly even affected by it in an emotional way. But when Ezra heard this, he was in broken despair. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, when was the last time that you wept over the sinfulness of your own heart and the sinfulness of the world? It's an experience of the people of God. Those who tremble at the words of God. Are broken because of sin. He was in brokenness, it tells us, and then silence, and then fasting, and then prayer. So there is this 
he's so awestruck, he's so blown away that he just sits in silence with his clothes torn as a sign and symbol and kind of an, an outward expression of his brokenness and despair. And so he fasts and then he begins to pray. And it says there that in verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of, here it is again, the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, And so the second category or the second heading is a response or the response of broken despair. So notice that we have here a glimpse of hope at the hand of God. We have a glimpse of hope because here we see the others that are also broken and afraid because of the sin among the people of God. There's a glimmer of hope here. Because the people could have just said, you know, you're making a big deal out of this, Ezra. Is this really a big deal in my life? Have you ever said that? I guarantee if you've never said it, you've been tempted to do it. And I would say that every one of us at one point in our lives, and maybe even more recently than we care to admit, would have to say, if we're honest, that we have justified our own sins. That we have looked at our own failures to obey the commandments of God and to keep our hearts in line with His Scriptures. And we justify it by saying it's not that big a deal. To err is human, right? This is true. But to minimize that sin is to compound more sin. It is never you and I... It is never the the proper response to sin in our lives is never to say, well, I'm only human. And then move on, justified in your own sight. It's never the proper response. The proper response is to be broken, to be contrite in your heart and in a way despair this reality because you know what? You say, well, you haven't told us, and I'm not sure I'll get the right answer. Well, I will tell you this morning, the reason that you and I should despair is because, first of all, we have dishonored our maker. Second of all, we should despair because this maker is holy. And because he is holy, he is just. And because he is just, my friend, we should be afraid. Because he will judge every single sin. <laughs> Even the little gray ones will be brought into judgment. But we do have a glimpse of hope because the hand of God is here moving as Ezra is praying. The hand of God is moving and others are coming around him with this same broken hearted, this same contrite spirit. 2 Corinthians, in the New Testament, Paul writes in chapter 7, verse 10, about this same broken sorrow over sin. He says this, 
For godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And that's the text for tonight when we come together at 6 o'clock. So I'm not going to expound upon that. But he's simply saying that there is a kind of sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation. And there's another kind that doesn't. We need to find out what that is. Did you know, my friends, that another reason that I see a glimpse of hope here is because the, this convicting work is the work of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convince and convict us that we are in fact sinners? That's what Jesus said. For example, in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, listen to Jesus. And when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us. (laughs) Because we can't be saved from the wrath to come if we don't fear the wrath of God because we don't think that we have done anything to deserve it. And that's why the Bible teaches that we are blind in our sin. But the Holy Spirit comes and He shows us. And He helps us to see ourselves For who we truly are, namely sinners, as Jonathan Edwards wrote, in the hands of an angry God. Number three. So this sin of faithlessness leads to a response of broken despair. Thirdly, notice if you will, a prayer of confession and repentance. A prayer of confession. And repentance. If you want to see how to repent and confess, this is your text. There's others in the Bible, but this is a clear, explicit example where a man of God is coming to God to confess sin and to repent. Now, there are four, five sections to this prayer. And we're going to read them together. Five sections. Number one. We are sinners. So what I was just trying to say, this is what we find in the text. Look, if you will, in verse 6. Verse 6. Saying, oh my God, I am ashamed and blessed to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. So the first thing that he does is he confesses we are sinners. And I want you to notice how this man of God identifies himself with the people of God, although he is not personally guilty in this matter. I went through and I printed this out. I always do. I print out so I can write all over it because I don't do that. So I printed it out and I marked every time he used the word our and we. And it is remarkable. 
how this man of God identifies himself so much with the people of God to whom God had joined him and made him a part of that he admits confession to God as if he himself is guilty even though in this particular matter he was not guilty. We are sinners. Secondly, the second section of his prayer, we have been disciplined for our sins. So he's going to acknowledge the past discipline of sin. So he admits that to God and he admits that they have been disciplined in the past. Look at verse 7 at the end that I did not read. At the end of verse 7. And our iniquities and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame as it is today. We're in this condition, God, because we have sinned against you. We have broken faith with you and we have disobeyed your word. Third section is an acknowledgement of grace. He not only acknowledges sin and discipline, but grace in verses 8 and 9. Look, if you will, at verse 8. But now for a brief moment... Favor, it's just another word for grace. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love. It's just another word for grace before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. The third section of his prayer is acknowledgement of grace. And that's all we've experienced is grace upon grace. The fourth section is an acknowledgement of God's law in verses 10 to 12. An acknowledgement of God's law. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. He acknowledges the word of God. My friend, you will never repent from sin until you are willing to admit that you are a sinner, until you are willing to admit that you have broken God's commandments and you have turned aside from his righteous rules. You will never repent truly and turn away from sin until you acknowledge the graciousness of God to even allow you to breathe his air. And you will never repent of sin until you acknowledge that God's word is true. That what God has said is right is right. And what God has said is wrong, is wrong. 
until you come to that point in your life, you will continue to justify your attitude. You'll continue to justify your actions and your beliefs. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 12 to 16, I'm not going to read it, but you can write that down. That's where that commandment comes from. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 12 to verse 16. We also looked at it already in Deuteronomy chapter 7 in verses 3 and 4 where it was reiterated for the people of God. Number five. So this is the fifth stage of this man's prayer. Number one, we are sinners. Number two, we have been disciplined. Number three, we acknowledge your grace. Number four, we acknowledge your law. Number five, acknowledgement of divine judgment. Here's another place that you must come to, and that is this, that you understand that divine judgment is what is coming and necessary because of your sin. That's what he does in these next Verses. Look, if you will, in verse 13. Verse 13. And after all that is come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and in and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations, would you not be angry with us until you consume us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, listen to this. You are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. The acknowledgement that God's justice is right. That what God should do on account of our rebelliousness and sinfulness is judgment. Is judgment. So that is the third main category. A prayer of repentance and confession. Number four. A covenant promise and accountability to faithfulness to God. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, this is what happens. When Ezra prayed and made confession, verse 1 of chapter 10, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. Watch this. This is so beautiful. A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And so they come to them and they say in verse 2, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. My friend, that's the apex of this sermon. All that we have looked at in this sermon is true. It is condemning us to the judgment of God that is the only fair thing for Him to do. But we come to this moment and we understand that as the people of God gathered around, they understood something about this God. You know what it is? That God is a merciful and a gracious God. And that although we are sinners in His sight, there is hope. My friend, that's why I'm standing here today. (laughs) If I didn't have hope that God is gracious and there is hope for us yet in this country, there is hope for us yet in this world, then I would go home 
and sit around until either Jesus comes or I die. But this verse of Scripture is there to show us that there is hope with God. If you're in this room this morning and you have sinned against God and you have rebelled against Him and there's not one of us who hasn't, what good news it is to hear the precious truth that God is a merciful and a gracious God. He is just Amen, but He is merciful and He is gracious and there is hope. There is hope for you, my friend. And so what do they do in response to this? Here's what they do. They make a covenant and they hold one another accountable to live in faithfulness to God. That's what they do in those verses. Ezra's praying, God's moving the people Instead of looking at him and saying, you know, you're just overreacting. This is not really a big deal. As we look around at the church today, we see people. And even myself, I'm just broken over the sinfulness of our own hearts and our own actions. And how we talk and how we, and the attitudes that we have so often. And we say, If anybody says anything about it, we just say, "Uh, you're making a big deal out of this, man. It's really really not a big deal. It's not? Oh. Well, I must be misunderstanding who God is, what he is like, and what he has said. Because in the people of in the covenant people of God, even in the Old Testament, my dear friends, they were held accountable to who? To each other. They made this covenant to hold one another accountable to pursue holiness and righteousness for the honor of God and for the good of the nation. And that's what you and I must do, my friends. Let me give you this as we begin to draw to a close. Two characteristics of true repentance are found in these verses. True characteristics. Two (laughs) characteristics of true repentance. Number one, true repentance is action. It is action. If you say, (laughs) and, and I was a master at this, you know, you get caught, that's when you cry. How come you don't cry before you get caught? If you'd never gotten caught, you'd never cried. You ever done that? True repentance is not, I'm sorry that I got caught. True repentance, listen, is action. It is a brokenness over the weight of your guilt that propels you like a rocket to change your life. And if that doesn't happen, my friend, you can cry all you want to cry. You can moan. You can make the biggest spectacle out of yourself. That is not repentance. Secondly, true repentance is submission to God's word. Repentance means that I both feel the sorrow of it and I am willing to change that course of action. And I am essentially submitting To the word of God. Whether it be in that little moment. Or whether it be in some prolonged lifestyle of sin. It is action. And it is submission to God's word. What God says is true. Notice in verses 7 and 8. That they were warned of discipline if they did not repent. 
What kind of discipline is this? This is not the discipline of God in a supernatural way. This is discipline from within the body. We could say within the body of Christ. And I'm saying that very pointedly. I'm saying that very forthrightly because I want you to hear it. And I want you to understand that the modern day church has left off from her pursuit of holiness. And we can see that where? In the fact that we do not on a regular basis pursue one another in prayer and love to encourage, admonish, and even correct if necessary. Someone toward personal holiness. They did it in the Old Testament. They did it in the New Testament church as well. So, the church must warn the straying to act on the unrepentant for God's honor and for their good. Number five. And I'm going to just mention this one to you. Reform is an ongoing process. Verses 12 to 17. Reform is an ongoing process. What you see, you go home and read it. When you read it, what you'll find is that they said, Hey, look, this sin is so big. It's so widespread in the church among the people that we can't even get it settled today. We need to, uh, this is going to be a process. Same thing today. Same thing today. Also under that, reform is an ongoing process. Notice in verse 15 that opposition is almost always present. There's always going to be somebody in the crowd, and sometimes they may have good intentions. Sometimes they even may have a pure heart in their own, in their own estimation. But there's always going to be somebody that says, you're making too big a deal of this. We don't need to do anything about it. We need to let that go. Who are we to say anything to them? There's always going to be almost always opposition when we are pursuing Holiness and obedience to the commands of God. And you see it there in verse 15. As they are opposed by a few people whose names were mentioned. Well, what do they do in verses 16 and 17? It is as if they did not pay them any attention at all. In verses 16 and 17, the faithful move on in obedience to the word of God. My friends, that's what we, we must do. That's what we must do. Number six. And this is... Probably one of the most remarkable ways to end a book. You, you notice that from verses 18 to 44, we have this huge list of the guilty. <laughs> it's the strangest way to end a book. Look at it. It just goes right down to verse 44. And these all had married foreign women. And listen to this. And some of the women had children. Period. End of the book. <laughs> Why? Because reform is an ongoing process. They're going to get to work. They're going to do it. And they did it. It took them three months to do it. They went through, they did, they, they all conformed, except for those ones that would not. And so, number six is this, the record of the guilty. The record of the guilty. <coughs> and I put here that the leaders were held in greater responsibility because they had led the people astray. Number seven, 
You said, I thought you got to the end of the book. I did. But you know, I skipped something that is so good that we need to go back and see it. Namely this. Number seven is the provision of a substitute. The provision of a substitute. Look at verses 18 and 19. Chapter 10. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Gives their names. Some of the sons of Jeshua. Look at verse 19. They pledged themselves to put away their wives. And here it is. Oh my friend. Will you listen as I speak these words? If you don't have a Bible in front of you. I want you to look at it if it's there. I want you to look at this. But if you don't have a Bible in front of you, I want you to hear these words. And their guilt offering was, the, was a ram of the flock for their guilt. In all of this message, we have been under the judgment of God and rightly so. But then we come to this one verse. It's the only place it's mentioned. There is a provision of a substitute. Because even if they corrected their error and put away the foreign wives, they were still guilty. And God is still holy. And what we have lost almost completely in the church today is the high view of the holiness of God. My friends, to understand that there is not one human being who could commit one half of one sin and stand before this holy God and not be condemned to a devil's hell. Do you understand that the Bible presents a God who is so holy that if you and I were to come before Him without the provision of a substitute, we would be instantaneously judged. To hell. We've lost that today. We've almost lost it. And that's why people aren't crying because of sin. Because they don't understand the holiness of God. But here we see that there must be the death of an innocent in the place of the guilty. And there's only one who could do that. No other human being could do it. An angel couldn't do it because they're not human. And angels can't atone for humans. But there was one. His name was Jesus. He became a man. And he went to the cross. And he died as a substitute for sinners. The innocent gave his life for the guilty. John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 29. As he saw the Lord Jesus coming to the Jordan River. He said, behold the Lamb of God. Which takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that beautiful? Sinners have hope. 
because of Jesus Christ. You know that ram that they laid on the altar? You know what it was? It's just a pointer. There is coming a lamb who will pay for this sin of faithlessness of Israel. One of my favorite statements that Jesus made in his life, I want to leave you with it. In chapter 11 of the book of Matthew, verses 28 to 30, this is what Jesus says. I want you to hear them, maybe for the first time. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your spirit. We thank you for this story. Most of all, we want to thank you for that last peace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to die in the place of sinners so that you, the holy God, can't look upon sin without judging it, has been patient, has been slow in bringing about your judgment so that we can have opportunity to repent and to trust in the one who died for us. So, oh God, we pray this morning that in this room filled with human beings, no doubt, every one of us sinners, that in this room this morning, you would grant us this spirit of repentance that whatever it is that we're harboring, we would confess it and we would repent of it and we would submit ourselves afresh and anew to your word. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who has never, ever turned away from their rebellion and sin and disobedience, that today would be that day. This hour, this moment would be the moment that in their hearts they feel the softening and the bowing of their knee so that they turn away from sin and trust in the finished work of the cross, the finished work of Jesus of Nazareth, who was a lamb, spotless and sinless, who gave himself for the sin of the world. And they believe that, they trust that with all of their hearts and all of their minds and all that they are, they lean upon that truth. Bowing the heart and the mind and the body and all that they are to your Lordship. We pray they would do that today as well. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.